Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. The rest of you, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, some of you may be old enough to remember, I was in high school when this happened. Images on your TV screen when the Berlin Wall came down in October of 1989. What you may not know is that prayer is what ultimately caused the Berlin Wall to come down and the collapse of the Cold War. There was a pastor named Christian Fuhrer. He was the pastor of St. Nicholas Church in Leipzig, East Germany. And he began prayer meetings on Monday nights in 1982 to pray for the end of communism, to pray for the wall to come down. Now this is during the tight fist of communism. This is at the height, wow, you lost me. This is the height of the Cold War. In 1985, he got bolder. He put up a sign outside the church saying, everyone is welcome, open to all. And slowly but surely there gained more people coming to these prayer meetings. And then in 1988, over 600 people attended this prayer meeting. And then things began to really heat up between May and October of 1989. It was during this time that the authorities came in and tried to shut them down. They grew into uh, full-blown demonstrations. The communist regime started arresting people. And then there was brute force, and many were beaten and imprisoned. But then on October 9th, it was an infamous night, 70 thousand people marched in the streets and they were prepared for the worst they thought that they were going to be the police the communist gestapo was going to come in and arrest everyone they were prepared for the worst but they lit candles and they walked around berlin and they basically chanted no violence no violence they were not arrested and here's what happened one month later after this massive rally the Berlin Wall came toppling down. People were jubilant. People were dancing in the streets, and it finally signaled the end of the Cold War. And this is what happens when God's people begin to pray. And I want to remind you, this was in an oppressive communist nation. Now, why do I bring up prayer, praying for our nation? We're not in a communist nation yet. Some of you are are awake now. We need to be praying for our nation and our leaders. So as we move into 1 Timothy chapter 2, we've got to keep the context in, in play here. Paul's main point to Timothy is you've got to deal with these false teachers. You've got to be urgent. False teachers are infecting the church. And so as we, as we looked at last week, there were two men who made a shipwreck of their faith because they were, they were falling away from the faith. They had been excommunicated. 
And then as we move into chapters 2 and 3, Paul is going to talk to us about how do we function as a church? What is our role? How do we function together as God's people? And so I want to just take it forward a little bit. Go to chapter 3 for a moment because in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, this is the thesis of the book of 1 Timothy. This is the main point that Paul's getting to. It comes a little bit later in the book, but in 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that, and here's the point, verse 15, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. How we are to live as a church. Now, I need you to hold on to your seatbelts for the next three weeks. Because we're going to be dealing with some controversial topics. Today we're going to be talking about how do we relate to the governing authorities. Before March of 2020, we didn't think about this much, did we? But then when COVID came and the lockdowns and the mandates, we as a church had to navigate what it meant to relate to our governing authorities, especially when they were telling us we could not meet as a church. Next week, we're going to talk about a fun topic Does God desire all people to be saved? What's the extent of the atonement? And what's this whole issue between free will and predestination and God's desire for people to be saved? And then the following Sunday, in case we haven't gotten controversial enough, we're going to talk about the role of men and women in the church. Are men to be the leaders in the church, in the home? Are women allowed to preach and be pastors and these types of things? So over the next three weeks, it's going to be a bumpy ride. So hopefully you will come back for the fun. So let's read together 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're just going to look at verses 1 through 4. I thought I'd preach more, but I just had to stop at verse 4 because it got longer than what we can manage on a Sunday morning. So let's read this together. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For this morning, here's the big idea. Here's the main point. Here's the central thrust of this passage of Scripture. Pray for leaders to support our, our freedom to practice the faith and proclaim the gospel. You kind of see three things in this passage of Scripture. Praying for our leaders, and then for two things. The freedom to be able to practice our faith and for the proclamation of the gospel. So this whole passage is about how we are to pray specifically for our leaders. So let's look at three truths that emerge from this passage of Scripture. And here's the first, the priority of fervent prayer. Now, let's keep the context in mind here. Paul has urged Timothy to deal with these false teachers. Timothy, get rid of these false teachers. Deal with these false teachers. They're infecting the church. And it's interesting. In our man-centered way of thinking, we might be tempted to prioritize all these other strategies in the life of a church over and above the priority of prayer. Remember last week, Paul says, fight the good fight. Wage the good warfare. We need God's grace to 
engage in spiritual warfare. And one of the primary ways we do this is on our knees. Now, I'm going to quote from a band from the 80s and 90s. This will date me. Petra. Russell's perked up now because that's one of his favorite groups. The rock band from the 80s and 90s had a great song. Get on your knees and fight like a man. Get on your knees and fight like a man. Prayer. Now, Paul says, first of all, this doesn't necessarily mean first in an order of like one, two, three, but basically what he's saying is first in priority. Make it the utmost priority. And Paul urges, first of all, I urge. It's, it's, a, it's a strong plea. Paul is passionate about this. It's the church's top priority to pray. And I find it interesting, of all the, the practices that Paul wants us to begin with, he starts with prayer. He says, first of all, above all things, if you're going to order your life as a church, if you're going to deal with false teaching, if you're going to deal with all these things in the life of the church, it begins with prayer. Now, Paul could have said this, Timothy, first of all, make sure you have a great children's program. Paul, first of all, make sure you have stellar music. Paul, first of all, he could say to Timothy, make sure you have great parking and good signage. And most of all, Timothy, first of all, make sure you have a killer website and a social media presence. Is that what Paul says? No. He says, first of all, pray. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things. There's nothing wrong with good music and children's and youth ministries and parking and all those types of things. That, those are important things we want to do as a church with excellence. But the issue is none of that would make any difference without prayer. When I first came to Emmanuel 18 years ago, I told the search committee, I told the elders, it's a non-negotiable for me as pastor that we are going to have prayer meetings once a week. Whether it's my wife and I meeting to pray or whether there's more people that join us, it's a non-negotiable. We are going to pray diligently for the life of our church, for prayer needs, for our nation. We are going to meet every week. And for the most part, for the past 18 years, we've done that. We've met almost every week for prayer meeting. Most of you know I'm a big fan of Charles Spurgeon. The first great Baptist pastor in the 1800s, the first megachurch. He had 6,000 people that came to Metropolitan Tabernacle back in London. And so this was a July day, and these five college students from America were excited to visit the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London and to, to see Charles Spurgeon preach. And so these five young students got there early, got there really early, and they were met by this kind gentleman, and they said, hey, we're here early. And this kind gentleman said, hey, let, you know, the service is going to start in a little while. Let me show you around the grounds here. They thought he was maybe the janitor or, or the custodian, but he was, he was a kind old man. So this man began showing them around the church. He says, hey, I want to take you to the boiler room. And they're like, the boiler room? It's the middle of July. Why do we want to go down to the, the boiler room? He's like, let me take you down to the boiler room. So they go downstairs, and there's this room underneath the sanctuary. And he opens the door, and they walk in the boiler room. Well, it's not really a boiler room. There's hundreds of people down there on their knees praying for the worship service. And the man says, by the way, I'm Pastor Spurgeon. I'm Charles Spurgeon. If, if it weren't for these people praying for me and praying for this church, I would not be a success. Our church lives or dies on the prayers of these people 
every Sunday in this boiler room. Can you imagine a hundred people, hundreds of people showing up every Sunday to miss Charles Spurgeon preaching, the greatest preacher of all time, but to go downstairs and to pray for the worship service and to pray for the ministry. Prayer. In the book of Acts, we see that the early church was devoted to prayer. In Acts 1.14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Devoting themselves. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of breads, and the prayers. They devoted themselves to prayer. Acts 6.4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. That word devote means to continue steadfastly, to make it the top priority, to be passionate, to be urgent, to be fervent in prayer, making prayer the heartbeat, the lifeblood of your life as a Christian. So the question you've got to ask is, are you personally devoting yourself to a lifestyle of prayer? Do you carve out time alone with God to spend in prayer? Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. First of all, Paul says to Timothy, the number one priority that you need to have as a young pastor to lead this church is you've got to be a church of prayer. And then he lists four types of prayers. Do you see it right there? First he says supplications. This means specific prayer requests. And it means that you cry out with a sense of desperation. So it's a desperate plea. It's a specific prayer request where you're desperate before God. It's a supplication. We see this in Ephesians 6.18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. Praying with this desperate need. You're needy. And then he says, secondly, there are prayers. This is just a general word for prayers, general prayer requests. The most basic word for prayers. Again, you see this, what, we, what, what Mickey, one of our elders, did earlier in our time of confession in Philippians 4, 6-7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So supplications, prayers, and then third, he says, intercessions. Intercessions, it carries the idea of boldness, urgency. And it means you're praying on behalf of others. You're interceding on behalf of others. You're standing in the gap on others. You're, you're coming and you're coming alongside others and you're praying for others. You're being a prayer warrior, a prayer partner. And then fourth on the list, he says, with all thanksgiving. It's more the way we pray. Are we thankful? And you can take that two ways. Are you thankful for God? Yes. Are you thankful for the person that you're praying for? You can take it both ways. Are you thankful? Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So first we see the priority of prayer. Paul says, Timothy, first of all, prayer. Then he lists four types. Supplication, prayer, intercessions, and you do it with thanksgiving. But then the second thing we see in this passage of Scripture, the subjects of our prayers. Who are we 
to be praying for? Well, Paul says, all people. Well, that makes sense, right? That seems pretty obvious. All people. Why would Paul have to say, pray for all people? Here's what you don't know, maybe historically. The Jewish people of Paul's day in the synagogues, they only prayed for fellow Jews. They would not pray for Gentiles. They would only pray for the Jewish people. And these false teachers that were infiltrating this church, they were, they were wrapped up in some type of Jewish mysticism, this Jewish genealogy, Jewish myths. And so probably what they were doing was they were only praying for Jewish people and leaving others out. So they were being exclusive in their praying. But what does it mean, all people? Does all mean all? So when Paul says, Timothy, I want you to pray for all people, does that mean, okay, I want you to get out the phone book in Ephesus, and I want you to start with A, then I want you to go through, and then you get to Z, like every single person in the phone book. Is that, is that what Paul's talking about here? We're going to get to this next week, because I, and I'm, I'm introducing it today. Does all mean every single person, or does it mean all types or classes or kinds of people? You see, Paul gives a qualifier there as to the all. Notice what he says in verse 2. For kings and all who are in high positions. We'll get more in depth in this next week, but the word all can have two different meanings depending on context. The word all can mean all without exception, meaning every single person that's ever lived who lives and will live. Every single person. All without exception. Like every single. All can also mean all without distinction, meaning different types of people male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, men, women, rich, poor, all kinds of people. And so, what Paul is doing here is I don't think he's saying pray for every single person in Ephesus. I think he's saying in a general way, Timothy, you need to pray for all kinds of people. All types of people. Don't leave anybody out of your praying. And he says especially pray for those who are kings and those who are in high positions. Now this is startling to me because who's the king, who's the emperor right now when Paul is writing this to Timothy? It's Nero. That crazy madman who burned down Rome and blamed it on the Christians. Nero who would send the Christians into the gladiator ring to be eaten by the Wild animals, that, that emperor who would take Christians and kill them and stick them up on post and dip them in tar and light them up so that his gardens could be lit up. That man, that wicked emperor, who also beheaded Paul and the apostle Peter. Pray for that man. Pray for that leader. And it's a difficult pill to swallow when we're called to pray for leaders. And those leaders are wicked. Or those leaders promote a view or a policy that's totally opposite to a biblical world view. Listen to what Romans 13.1 says. Let everyone or let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. God has established governments. God has ordained our leaders, whether we like them or not. They are there by God's sovereign decree. Proverbs 8, 15 through 16. By me, God says, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles all who govern justly. 
Now, ultimately, in an ideal world, governments are there to judge justly, to act justly, to promote the welfare, and they are God's servant to do what God has called them to do. That's what the government's there for, to punish the unjust, to punish the evildoer, to make sure that there's law and order in culture. 1 Peter 2, 13-17 says the same type of thing. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Give honor to our leaders. Pray for our leaders. Do you seek the welfare of where you live by praying for the leaders who govern where you live? When the nation of Israel was taken into Babylonian captivity, Jeremiah the prophet told them this in Jeremiah 29.7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Do you pray for the welfare of your city, your state, your nation? Do we want northeastern Colorado and Sterling and Logan County to be a better place for everybody to live because of the prayers of God's people? Are we seeking the welfare of where we live? We can sit here and complain all day long. We as Christians complain a lot. How often are we on our knees praying for those that make decisions directly that impact our lives? When was the last time you prayed for our mayor, our county commissioners? our superintendents of school boards, our police chief, our sheriff. When's the last time you spent time in prayer for our leaders? Well, let's third look at the goal of our prayers. Why are we praying for our leaders? This is where it gets dicey. The goal of our prayers. Well, we see two goals. You see there in verse 2, for kings and who are all in high positions, that, okay, that's a, I'm not going to bore you with the Greek, that's a hina clause in the Greek, which tells us what the purpose is of the praying, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is, please, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's two goals in our praying. The first goal is this, that we would be free to practice our faith. And we'll talk about that. And number two, that people would get saved through our sharing of the gospel. So the first goal of our praying is so that the governing authorities would promote our freedom to practice our faith and not infringe or intrude upon those freedoms. We want stability in our communities. We want stability in our nation, economic, political, and social. So what should we be praying for? We should be praying for human flourishing and stability. 
We should pray for the protection of life, especially the unborn life. Pray for the peaceful assembly of churches. Uh, During COVID, we really had to struggle with this. Our our neighbors to the north in Canada, they struggle mightily with this. Sometimes they're not even allowed to do the things we're allowed to do. The freedom to practice our faith without government intrusion. That's what a peaceful, quiet life means. A peaceful, quiet life means this. Government, leave us alone and let us practice our faith. Don't intrude on it. Don't establish a religion. Don't infringe upon us. You need to protect our God-given freedom to be able to practice what we already have the right to practice so that we can do it peacefully and we can do it quietly. Don't infringe upon our rights. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11-12. We're to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. To live a peaceful and quiet life. Acts 9.31 describes the church. All the persecution and all the chaos that was going on in the early church. Acts 9.31 says something very interesting. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. That's what we want. We pray for peace in our nation so that churches and Christians can live at peace. We don't want upheaval. We don't want instability. We want our governing leaders to protect our rights to live out our faith. Now notice what Paul says, peaceful and quiet lives. As I was thinking about peace, peaceful, I can't help but think about the violence that's terrorizing parts of our nation. Some of our inner cities in our nation are being terrorized by violence. You see it every day on the news, just violence. Our Monday morning men's study, we're going through the book of Habakkuk, and Habakkuk is dealing with this, and he cries out to God, God, I see violence in the nation. Why aren't you dealing with it? There's violence everywhere. God, why aren't you stepping in? Why are you being quiet? And we see that same thing. We're shocked by violence. I mean, it used to be when you heard about a school shooting, everybody would be like up in arms, and it would, it would grip us, but now it happens almost what? seems like all the time. There's school shootings. There's church shootings. There's looting and rioting in our major streets. There's lack of support for law enforcement. You see, there's a purpose why God has put governments in place. Romans 13, 3-4 tells us that. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he's God's servant. The the government is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he's the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. This is where our nation has gone off the rails. The government is God's servant to protect life and to protect law and order. So we should be praying for our police. We should be praying for our law enforcement. We should be praying for our judges that serve in the criminal justice system because here's what's happened. Our nation has been infected with a Marxist ideology of social justice, not biblical justice. Are you praying for true biblical justice to happen? That criminals would be punished. That our streets would be safe. That we would have the freedom to live out our faith peacefully. So how do you pray? How do you pray for leaders that stand opposed to a Christian worldview or become increasingly hostile 
to Christ and His gospel. When Paul says we live peaceful, quiet lives, he doesn't mean that there's going to be an absence of conflict or that we'll never be persecuted. Living a peaceful, quiet life doesn't mean that we close our mouths and never talk about Jesus. It's not what Paul's saying. It doesn't mean that we're ashamed of the gospel or that we never prophetically speak into the life of our leaders and address their downfalls. One New Testament scholar says it this way, a Christian's life is not to be quiet of speech, but it should be quiet in nature, a peace stemming from a godly and reverent life. As Christians, you've got to speak. We've got to speak up. And that will bring persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You're going to be persecuted. And that's the same, that's 2 Timothy right here, 1 Timothy, same author. There's been a video clip circulating of the late, great Adrian Rogers, the great Baptist pastor. It's on patriotism and Christian nationalism and all these things that are going on. And I've watched, the, I've watched it on Twitter a couple of times. But here's one thing I wrote down as I was listening to it. He said this, we will be civil, but we won't be silent. We'll be civil, but we won't be silent. We cannot be silent in a culture that is this wicked. If Christians are silent, who else is going to speak up? Now, we can live quiet and godly lives, and we want the government to leave us alone, but there comes a point where you and I have got to speak up and speak to the evils in our culture, and especially if our leaders are the ones that are propagating it upon us. But notice what else Paul says we should be praying for. That we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified. Godly and dignified in every way. That word dignifies means respectable. A lifestyle fitting what it means to name the name of Christ. It really means to have a serious or maturity about yourself. That you have a high biblical standard of morality, you're level-headed, you're spiritually mature. I thought about that this week. Godly and dignified. Godly and dignified. Is our culture godly and dignified? No, it's ungodly and undignified. We live in a culture that is flagrantly undignified. There's no shame in our culture. Now, we may get turned off of Facebook Live and YouTube, but that's okay. I'm about ready to go there. This transgender stuff, this transgender activism, it is ungodly and undignified. Who would have thought years ago our culture would champion preschoolers, being in drag queen story hour. Or that young boys would be chemically castrated to become girls. We are in an ungodly culture. We are in an ungodly culture. And are we praying or are we complaining? Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We need to pray for our freedoms. But Christian, may I remind you, you are to pray to be an example to the ungodliness around you. To the, to the lewdness, to the sexual immorality, to all the degeneracy and wickedness you see around you. Are you praying that Christians, we would shine the light and be examples of what it means to be decent and godly in this culture? 
Because, frankly, our children are growing up not seeing anything different. It's infecting their TV shows. It's infecting everything. Parents, grandparents, Christians, are we leading the ways in this? When our leaders are ungodly, when they are wicked, it's, it's one of the ways that we love our enemies, by praying for them. What did Jesus tell us? Luke 6, 27-28, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. The year was 155 A.D. This was the height of the Roman persecution of Christians. They were gathering up Christians because here's what was happening in the Roman Empire at the time. You had to pledge your allegiance to Caesar as God and King, as your Lord. You had to pinch some incense on the altar and pledge your allegiance to Caesar as your ultimate Savior. And so they were rounding up Christians. And there's this old 86-year-old Christian pastor. And his congregation said, you better go into hiding. They're going to come for you. You're our leader. You're our spokesman. You better go into hiding. And this old pastor actually was mentored by the Apostle John many years earlier when he was a youth. But he knew it was God's will for him to be arrested. So he told his congregation, calm down. They're going to arrest me, and that's okay. So one night, these Roman soldiers came to arrest him. And instead of resisting arrest, he said, hey, come with me. I want you to sit down with me. Have a meal with me. So the old man invites these Roman soldiers to sit down and have a meal, and he begins to share the gospel with them. He begins to pray for them, and they're like, why in the world is this man going to be arrested? He's just a a kind, gentle, 86-year-old man. Well, they had to arrest him, and they brought him before the authorities. And the judge told this 86-year-old pastor, you renounce Christ right now, or you'll be burned at the stake. Swear allegiance to the emperor or you'll be burned to the stake. Renounce your Savior now. And here's the famous words. He said this. For 86 years, I have served Jesus and he's done me no evil. How could I curse my king who has saved me? He wouldn't bow to the pressure, and he was burnt at the stake. He's the first great Christian martyr of the early church. His name's Polycarp, the martyr. But he gave instructions on how we should pray in some of his writings, and so listen to this. He says, pray for all the saints. Pray also for kings and powers and princes and for them that persecute and hate you and for the enemies of the cross that your fruit may be manifested among all men. If you have bad leaders, we shouldn't just accept it but pray for God to change their hearts. John Calvin said it's our duty to pray to God that he may make bad men good. Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Now here's something you may not want to hear. And I don't understand how all this works. But I've seen it in the nation of Israel and I can see it happening today. One of the ways that God disciplines his people is by giving them bad leaders. And so if we have bad leaders if we have a bad government, if we have bad legislatures, 
instead of complaining about them, maybe we need to turn the attention to ourselves and say, what have we done to allow this? What sin do we have in our lives that we need to ask for forgiveness for? Why are, how are we not living the Christian life? Maybe God is giving us what we deserve. Now, again, I don't know how all that works, and I'm not saying that's necessarily happening, but I do know that that happened with the nation of Israel. God would often send them ungodly leaders as a way to discipline them. So the state must promote peace, preserve law and order, punish the evildoer, and give us the freedom to practice our faith. We, in turn, as the church, as God's people, need to pray for our leaders, pray for them to administer justice, and then be thankful that we have the freedoms that we have. God's been very gracious, and we cannot expect them to last. So the first way we pray, or reason why we pray, is so that we can practice our faith freely, peaceably, be godly and dignified. But the second way we should pray is so that the lost could get saved. Notice what he says there in verse 3. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We should be praying for the salvation of lost people. And I want you to think about it this way, two swords. God has given the government the sword of law and order. But God has given the church the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God. We don't do things with power. We don't do things by forcing people to believe. We go in the power of the Spirit and the power of the Gospel, and we urge people to get saved through Jesus Christ. It's the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18-20. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We should be praying for the nations, praying for the salvation of your friends, pray for the salvation of your family members, pray for the salvation of the lost, that people would come to the knowledge of the truth. And so we want the government to protect our freedoms but we also want to pray for the gospel to go forth in power. So ultimately, what should we be praying for? Let's just distill this down to really where the rubber meets the road. What should we be praying for? Well, first, regeneration on an individual level. Regeneration. Salvation. The new birth. God opening hearts. God changing hearts on an individual level. Nothing in this nation is going to happen unless there are individual Christians being born every day through the power of the gospel, the new birth. But second, revival on a national level. Regeneration on an individual level, revival on a national level. Are you praying for a spiritual awakening in our nation? A true spiritual awakening. See, here's, what's, here's what happens. Here's my prayer. If we're praying for regeneration on an individual level and praying for revival on a national level, would God so please to bring about reformation? That's ultimately what we need. We need a new reformation. Regeneration, revival, reformation. Because here's the truth. Only Jesus can change hearts. Only Jesus can bring about true change 
in our nation that's lasting. Only the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the empty tomb and his gift of eternal life and forgiveness of sins for all who would repent and believe in him is the only hope we have. So do you fervently pray for all people, for our leaders, for salvation, for regeneration, for revival, for reformation? You know, notice what, what Paul says here. At the beginning of verse 3, this is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. This type of praying pleases God. This type of praying is good. This type of praying glorifies God. This type of praying is crucial if we have any hope of seeing change in our nation. So I'm going to ask you, get on your knees and fight like a man. Or maybe say it this way. Get on your knees and fight like a woman. Get on your knees and fight like a boy. Get on your knees and fight like a girl. Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane said this. What a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. So Emmanuel Baptist Church, I'm going to ask you to do something this morning. If you are physically able, I'd like for us to get on our knees. If you're physically able, I know that some of you are not, but if you are physically able, I'd like for us to get on our knees and let's pray. Maybe there's a a person in your life that you want to pray for their salvation. Or maybe God has laid upon your heart to pray for revival. Or maybe God has laid upon your heart a special leader in our nation, maybe our president, maybe our governor that you just want to lift up in prayer Let's use this time, and if you want to come down to the front, you can do that as well. We're just going to get on our knees, and we're going to fight like men and women in prayer. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning. And Jesus, our only hope is in you. If we're going to see any change in this nation, it will not come through power politics. It will not come through economics. It will not come through the ingenuity of man. It's going to have to come through a sovereign move of you in people's hearts. So, Lord, we just come on our knees to pray. Lord, there may be some in our lives that need salvation. Maybe there's a family member that's not saved, a co-worker, a dear friend. Lord, would you just open the eyes of their heart to see their need for salvation? And Lord, would you save them? Would you bring about regeneration deep in their hearts? So, Lord, we pray for regeneration of those that are dead in their sins, that you'd make them alive in Christ. And, Lord, we pray for revival on a national level in our nation. Lord, true revival that would involve repentance and the preaching of your word and holiness. Lord, we can't manufacture that revival. All we can do is pray for it. 
And Lord, we ultimately pray for reformation, that you would do a, a, an amazing change in our hearts and our churches across the land. Lord, we just have, there's, there's so much things we can pray for. Lord, we've got violence. We pray against the violence in our land. We pray against the sexual immorality in our land. We pray for safety in our schools, in our churches. Lord, we pray for the unborn child. Father, we just come before you as your people. We humble ourselves. Lord, sometimes we're clueless. We don't know what to do. All we, need to, all we know is just to cry out to you. But we trust you. We keep our eyes fixed upon you. We love you. Would you please do a work that can only be described by a holy, powerful God? Lord, let us live peaceable, quiet, dignified, and godly lives in this present age. And Lord, would your gospel go out in power and would many people get saved? Help us leave this place encouraged and help us leave this place committed to be more prayerful for our nation, more prayerful for our leaders. We won't be silent. We'll be civil, but we won't be silent. We need your help, Lord, and help us to be the people you've called us to be. And we ask this in the strong name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.